Hey, 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 welcome back, Pop Culture Quorum Deo. And when I say welcome back, listener, I'm glad you're here, but I'm really talking to Michael Dickerson making his triumphant return to the Pop Culture Quorum Deo podcast. Mr. Dickerson, how are you, sir? I'm doing excellent and happy to be here. Thanks for having me back. And I'm also joined by the good doctor, Jared Moore. Jared, I know it has been uh, it's been a busy Lord's Day for the all three of us, but I know it has been for you as well. So how you doing, Jared? I'm doing well, man. A little tired. Been been a long day, but it's been a good day. You know, been a good day. Good hanging out with uh, with our folks and people seem to be real encouraged. We actually got back to the meeting in the sanctuary this Sunday morning. Oh, that's cool. We were we were meeting in the gymnasium for about, golly, since May, June, May, June, July, August. So, wow, almost five months. Yeah, that's wild. I'm glad to hear that. Did the uh, you said you're tired. Did the preacher get long winded today? Not too bad. I actually got done pretty pretty much on time. But it's been a difficult subject because I've been preaching through Philemon and then examining examining critical race theory. And um, so I did four sermons. I just think it's, uh, you know, the Bible teaches the exact opposite of critical race theory. And Philemon, I think, is a amazing display of thankfulness, forgiveness, reconciliation, grace, uh, which none of those things are part of crit- critical race theory. Have you made those sermons available on your website? Um, they're on uh, Facebook uh, on my church's page, uh, Cumberland Homesteads Baptist Church. And um, I mean, I'm sure they're controversial. I don't intend for them to be, but, you know, that's how it goes. <laughs> that's how it goes. Yeah, I think I heard they can be found on jaredmorriscancelled.com if anybody wants to look that up. I actually need to register that domain name. And- well, I got .net, but .com was already gone. <laughs> <laughs> Jared, you said you weren't too bad when he asked you long winded today. If the preacher says not too bad, then everybody else was like, ugh. Yeah, they look like a dolly painting. They're just melting all over the pews. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't preach as long as Jeff Wright does. That's for sure. Yeah, Jeff Wright's ridiculous. <laughs> Jeff Wright's like, oh, I kept you for an hour, hour and a half. I appreciate you making it sound like it's a hostage situation. That's really helpful. <laughs> encouraging. I was waiting for something more there. It's like, I'm Jeff Wright. I keep people an hour and a half. I'm just it. pacing the stage with a weapon. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Holding people hostage with the word. <sighs> yeah, that's a domain name, too. All right, guys. Let's jump into our first segment. What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? So, gentlemen, in no particular order, what you watching? Go for it, Mike. All right. Uh, well, I've been watching some... Um, some uh, Umbrella Academy. You guys seen this? Yeah, I haven't started the second season, but I enjoyed the first. Yeah, it's it's kind of surprising. You know, it's all you know. I'm not as big of a superhero comic book type guy, I guess, as as you guys maybe. But um, but we've really enjoyed it. Me and my wife have really enjoyed it. Um, you know, I mean, there's quite a bit of violence in it. If you're you know, just as a heads up, but it's uh. I think it's very interesting and it's not, you know, sometimes you can just see like, oh, this is the way it's going. And I think several times it's kind of had a major twist where you're like, oh man, no, I didn't see that coming at all. So uh, that's what we've been watching lately. Really enjoyed it. Uh, my kids really enjoy the Goosebumps movies. Have you guys seen those? The newer ones? They, um, That's one of the like, there's not a lot of great, I don't think Halloween movies per se for kids or you know, folly, scary, semi-scary movies. But my boys both like that. They're five and seven. Some of y'all might be like, what? You're showing a five-year-old. But they really enjoy it. And um, I think it's all in that kind of like, this is obviously fake realm. 
not you know it's not bloody or anything like that or but they've they really in, enjoyed them and I actually don't think they're bad myself so I've kind of enjoyed watching them too we watched both those in the last week or so <clears throat> is that the the Jack Black movies yes yeah yeah we've enjoyed those too I, I tell you man the best kids scary movie is one you turned me on two years ago uh, at least in my kids opinion it's Monster House yeah yeah I really like that one too. That's funny. Um, it's kind of, I think, even more slanted, a little older because some of the, a little bit of the language, and then also just kind of like the disrespectful nature, some of that stuff. Um, so that's funny you say that because we were just talking the other day and we're like, maybe our boys could watch that. Uh, we could talk through some of that stuff with them, uh, but they haven't seen that yet. So, um, but it's actually me and my wife really like that one. That's uh, that's a good one. So, have y'all ever seen the? Um, I haven't seen it in years, but I, it's another one I thought about. I think it's definitely too old for my boys. But um, have y'all ever seen the Disney movie Something Wicked This Way Comes? I don't think I have. So it was made in like the early 80s, um, and I kind of added it to my playlist the other day. I can't remember where I saw it, because I don't think it's on Disney+, Plus. Um, maybe an Amazon or something. But anyway, it's uh, it's made in the 80s, and it's about a carnival that comes to town and basically tries to like kidnap people, especially kids. <laughs> so it's kind of kind of scary, but there's like zero language on it. I think they may say the word hell, and that's like as bad as it gets. Uh, of course, there's no sexual content whatsoever, but it's kind of freaky scary. Um, and it's kind of like mystical, you know, as far as like the wind blows and like, he's like, is there something here, you know, type thing. And, and it's got some pretty scary characters in it. Uh, I think I looked it up Common Sense Media, and I think they were saying like 12 and up. Up or something like that. Of course, sometimes they're way off, but um, but anyway, that's one. I don't think I was going to watch it and see what I thought because it, it's been years since I saw it. But if you're looking for something that's kind of like a little more unknown, maybe you haven't seen something wicked this way comes. It's I think it's pretty good. So I always liked it. I appreciate the heads up. I'll definitely check that out. What about you, Jared Moore? Um, I don't really. I haven't seen anything that I can really recommend. You know, because it's got you know. I mean, I was watching. Um, Oh, it's a series on HBO, Raised by Wolves. Um, but then you get to like the last episode and there's a scene in it. Um, so I can't in good conscience recommend it. But so that's what I've been watching. That's the Ridley Scott series, right? Yeah. And I'm a big fan of the first two Alien movies and uh, even uh, Prometheus. And uh, I even liked Alien 3 growing up. I was big into sci-fi growing up and Predator and Alien were my jam, man. I've seen Predator, I bet, 200 times growing up. Wow. I used to, I used to put it on when I was like 10 and uh, had an old tape um, that was taped like like uh, my uh, buddy's dad and their family had two VCRs. And so they would get movies and record them. And so I had one of those tapes with like a line down the middle of the screen and would put it on every night when I'd go to bed and fall asleep watching Predator. I'm going to blow your, blow your mind here and tell you I've never seen any of the Alien movies or Predator or Alien versus Predator for that reason. Oh, my for that goodness. Reason. Oh, my gosh. You got to remedy that, man. I don't know why. I just... Dude, we're, we need to stop this podcast right now. So there's certain sci-fi that I get into, and then there's certain that I don't. Um, like everybody always talks about, oh gosh, what's the movie Harrison Ford? And it's like a famous sci-fi movie. Blade Runner. Yes. 
I, I don't get like I started watching Blade Runner and I was like halfway in. I'm like, no, I just I didn't finish it. Now, maybe I'm terrible. I'm not like cultured enough or something, but I just there's certain ones I don't love. It has to be like pretty accessible to me. Now, those may be I don't know, but it's just growing up. I never watched a lot of stuff like that. And then into adulthood, it just never clicked with me. So I, I've <laughs> never seen any of those movies. We We need to have a party and fix all of this. The original Predator is it's amazing. I mean, it's a military movie, so there's some there's a little crude humor and there's language and some severe violence. But it is uh, it still holds up. You got Jesse Ventura in it and Arnold and I'm sold. Jesse Ventura, I'm sold. (laughs) Their arms are just greased up and, you know, exactly how you dress in a jungle environment. You tear off your sleeves and grease your arms up. That's how I dress every day. What are you talking about? Who doesn't <laughs> grease their arms on a daily basis? <laughs> <laughs> I actually relate to what you're saying about sci-fi, but those are, I think those belong on must-see sci-fi lists. I'd really be curious to see what your thoughts were if you ever did watch them. Uh, I I mean, Predator is maybe the platonic ideal of the 80s action movie. It, it's really good. And Alien is one of the scariest movies, and Alien 2 also. Those are two of the scariest movies in any genre. So. I'm I'm fans of all three. I've had two similar instances to this recently when I told somebody I'd never seen the Bill and Ted movies and they freaked out on me like, what? You've never, oh my goodness. Like I just said, I never saw Forrest Gump. Like that's how they (laughs) equated it. And then also this one I will say is I've never seen the Harry Potter movies. Oh man. Yeah. I've never read the books. And uh, I mean, I did read, did read uh, Jared's book on it. I'm just kidding. Um, But I did. (laughs) But no, I, uh, I just, I don't know what it was. I just never, I mean, back in the day, I guess maybe I was influenced some by the, uh, you know, this is the end of the, these books are the end of the world for the Christendom as we know it. (laughs) Um, But, you know, then later on, I just never, never, I don't know, just didn't. So that's, I know those are, I realize I'm in the minority on those things, but. Well, I've seen the Bill and Ted movies. They're fine. I I haven't seen the new one because I'm not crazy about it. I'm not in the Keanu Reeves cult either. But the Predator and Alien, I think, are and particularly Alien. Those first two Alien movies are in a totally different tier. I think those are must watch. What were you going to say, Jared? Mike, on uh, I think on IMDb, both Alien movies are in the top fifty still. Like really? Yeah, in rating. Um, so you need to watch those. And then the original Predator is it's iconic, man. It's um. Uh, I don't know. I'm <laughs> I think it's one of the best movies ever made, but uh, that's just me. That's nostalgia, you know? Yeah, it's a, it's a super hot take. But I just picture young Jared Moore. You have told that story before. Now, I remember at some point you telling me about watching Predator every night, but I'm thinking about how do I raise my kids to be a Ph.D. systematic theologian, and I think I just need to put them on Predator on a loop all night. There you go, man. That That's the secret. <laughs> No, that that's probably why that probably it took me 20 years to get a PhD, man. So, you know, I, I did everything the hard way, the long way. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend to go that route. Well, I'll give you a heads up. You may have watched it ahead of me, but I had enough people tell me to watch the Vid Angel series, The Chosen, that I finally caved and started watching it. Are you all familiar with this? I'm familiar with it. I have not seen it yet, but I actually plan on watching it as well. Yeah. Yeah, me too. It's really, really good. Um, it It's kind of the thing that I wish movies about Jesus had always been like, you know? Uh, there's been a couple times, I'm not giving anything, I don't think I'm giving too much away anyway, that Mary Magdalene is featured early on, and the, the story takes the takes the, you know, sort of meets her when she's demon possessed. And when Jesus heals her, man, I was like 
I was like two two more scenes away from having an ugly cry. It was really great. My kids were looking at me like, "What's going on with you, Dad?" And I was like, "Look, that's this is entirely speculative, you know, but that sounds so much like Jesus, and they use scripture well." Uh, I've been really impressed. I think we're three episodes in. The third one is all about Jesus hanging out with some kids, and I couldn't be more more happy about it. Uh, my, now, my kids have kind of called me. They know I think it's a big deal to visually represent Jesus. And they're like, Dad, what's the deal here? I thought we didn't do this. And I'm like, your dad's a hypocrite, kid. Shut up. We're watching the show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that's funny that you bring that because I've had a church member mention it to me as well. But, you know, that has a Sparta connection. Did you know that? Well, so someone had told me that Dr. Drake's kid had worked on it, but I haven't seen his name in any. Adam Drake is his name. He's the assistant director. He's on IMDb and everything for it. So that's super cool. I've looked for his name on the stuff and I guess I've missed it. But yeah, you know, a little birdie had told me that. And that's super exciting that the series is really good. So I'm glad he's working on high quality stuff. Yeah. You know, he's actually uh, he's been he's you know, I, I know him a little, a little bit, um, but his parents and my parents are really close friends. And um, if it's he's worked on quite a bit of stuff, like he was a first assistant director on that Case for Christ movie. Um, that was, you know, had some, some play for sure. And then, um, a movie called only that was, I think it's on Netflix. It's, um, it kind of, it was in like Netflix's top 10 for a couple of weeks. Mm. Um, and so anyway, but yeah, he, so I've seen him promoting it a lot on his, uh, on his, uh, Facebook and stuff like that. And I think, you know, they're doing like a, uh, crowdfunding type thing. So they're, I think they're working on the second season and they're looking for, you know, basically people to say, yeah, I'll pledge to give you five bucks to help make the second season or whatever, um, which is kind of an interesting way to do it. So, yeah, I think the first season or maybe they're talking about the second one, but one of their two projects chosen season one or two is the most, it's the highest, uh, I don't want to say grossing, but like it's got the most donations of any crowdfunded film. Hmm. Christy and I, Christy and I are planning to give something to them. Like it, it's really well done. I wish more Christians were making art of that caliber. The thing everybody told me is spot on. <laughs> Jesus is super likable. He's not. Uh, he's not a non-serious character. Uh, you get these scenes of him kind of wrestling with the Lord in prayer, but he's also like he's the guy you would. It makes sense that people wanted to hang out with him and follow him around, and that's really enjoyable. I think. I think we're intimidated to portray Christ. In fictional narratives, which kind of goes back to my point about like, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't try to do that. But setting that question aside, this is the best job I've seen. So well done, Vid Angel. Well, I'm glad to hear that from you, because although, you know, some of the some other people have told me about it and stuff. Obviously, I know you're sensitive to that kind of like I am. So to hear, you know, kind of a good review. Um, I had a movie like that once. Y'all remember the movie? I think it was just called The Gospel of John. Um, and it was more of like a, I think it was maybe new living translation or something, but literally the entire movie was just the text of John. So they didn't add like any other parts to it. And it was one of the few that I was like, okay, I can really watch this because they're just reading word for word from the scriptures and playing out what was happening at the time. That was another one that was several, gosh, that's probably 10 years ago, maybe more. Um, but that's one of the few that I enjoyed. A lot of them that are recommended, I don't enjoy. Yeah, we're we're kind of in lockstep here. So I know like 20 years ago, there it was probably the same company. Somebody did the Gospel of Matthew and same deal. They just the dialogue was just the straight text of the Gospel of Matthew. And it up until this, it was kind of my favorite. And, and honestly, if you if you think you have some need for a, <laughs> a movie about Jesus, I guess I'd still default to that one because it's so strictly tied to the text. But 
again, this one captures a Jesus who's, he's just really wonderful. And, you know, there's this letter that C.S. Lewis got one time from a little girl who was worried that she liked Aslan more than she liked Jesus. And Lewis wrote back to her and said, look, anything you like about Aslan is just something that I have copied from Christ. And I thought that was such a good yeah, a good way to respond to that little girl. And I, I feel like that's what's happened here, that these the stories I've seen so far, we don't have a lot of record that this is what Jesus did. We know the characters, but we don't know these specific actions. But man, it uh, it really strikes you that this is what Christ would have been like, mm. you know, or at least comparable to this. So if you guys watch it, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Maybe we can get back together and review it. Sure. That sounds cool. Probably drink on. Sorry, what was that? You can probably bring Adam on, right? Oh. Oh. I didn't think those were words the first time he said it. I didn't. All I heard was Poopy Draco. <laughs> yeah, I heard some Russian boxer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I bet, he, I bet he would be willing to come on, man. Yeah, I'd love to talk to him. I'd love to talk to him. Now, Adam Drake, also, our listeners may not know this, he, he was involved in a movie set in Sparta, right? And your parents were in that, Michael? Yeah, you talking about the... Um, the Heavenbound movie? Is that the one you're talking about? Heavenbound? Yeah, it was actually filmed in his parents' house, I think, mostly. So, yeah, that was one a couple of years ago. And um, he's done a couple others, but that was, I think, like his movie, like straight up, like his, him and another guy, I think, wrote it and everything. So, I enjoyed Heavenbound. I thought it was a movie that understood evangelicals and kind of picked fun at them without belittling evangelicals. Mm-hmm. It, yeah. it felt like inside the family humor, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, fellas, anything else for? What you watching? What you watching? What you watching? Uh, I am watching some NBA playoffs. You guys watching any playoffs? Yeah, I tell you what, Mike, let's just bring that up in the next segment here because we got to give the uh, Lakers cultist his chance to talk. Okay. So let's move into. So sorry to interrupt. All right, Mike, give us your propaganda. No, I just, you know, it's it's funny because, I mean, I've been, you know, I, of course, I love Jordan. Everybody loved Jordan, but I didn't really get into NBA basketball until late in high school. And Kobe was really the guy I kind of latched onto. So, I, you know, I was a huge Kobe fan. And um, so I watched him for those years. And I mean, for many years, therefore, I had kids and stuff. I would buy the NBA League Pass. I'd watch every single Lakers game. Um I'm not as big a fan as I am of Indiana basketball, but uh, I would say it's it's up there, probably second for me um, as far as teams I love. And so anyway, I, I really liked it and enjoyed it and uh, stuck with them even during kind of the losing years there or, you know, as much losing, I guess, as they have. Um, but, you know, I was never a big fan of LeBron. I didn't I didn't hate him. I just didn't love his kind of like just put your head down, pull your way down the lane type style. Um, but I think part of that was, you know, just, I don't know, earlier in his career, maybe he's more, but, you know, later in his career here, I mean, obviously he led the league in assists this year, um, you know, triple double machine. He's, uh, expanded to give himself more of a three point shot. He's, um, you know, just some of these different things he's done defensively. And so anyway, I've, I've grown more respect for him, but what I've noticed is that, you know, it's funny, he's been in the league 17 years and he's been to the finals 10 times. I mean, he's basically in like Bill Russell territory as far as that success. Now, in his nine previous appearances, he's won three championships, and that's kind of the knock on him. But at the same time, I think you could look at especially some of those Cleveland teams and say, I mean, 
who was helping him, you know, on those teams. He didn't have other great, when he was in Miami, he went to four finals, won two championships. So I've grown, you know, got some more respect for him. What I've noticed though, is just, it's like, it's never enough, no matter what he does. Mm-hmm. I think there was a game in the playoffs when he had like 18 points, 17 rebounds and like 17 assists. So, I mean, that's a crazy high triple double and people are like he's got to do more he's got lebron's got to bring more he's got to do more (laughs) but then you know you'll have uh Kawhi, um you'll have jimmy butler you'll have these guys um having 10 point games um having you know Kawhi had some good games but he was not dominating you know um a lot of the playoffs and stuff other guys and people are like i mean they had a good game and i just i don't know i've just been struck by this thing that lebron seems to not get uh get the benefit of the doubt or respect or what. And I don't know if that's just because they're tired of talking about it. Paul Pierce keeps saying stuff. He's like, nobody's scared of LeBron. I'm like, well, you should be scared of it. <laughs> 10 finals in 17 years. I don't know. I'd be pretty scared of him, but it always happens at the beginning of the playoffs where people are like, I just don't think they have enough this year. And then here you go. They've won three, all three series four one pretty much dominated those series. Um, I even heard somebody say the other day that the Clippers were still a better team. And I'm like, well, they lost to the same exact team that the Lakers just beat in five games. So I don't know. It's just it's kind of funny. But I, I think they're the still the favorites to win uh, win the title this year. I'd be surprised if they didn't. But they're going to have a tough series, I think. So Yeah, I think the final game, maybe the final game between the Bucks and the Heat is playing out as we're recording. The last I looked, the Heat were up. Celtics Heat. Yeah. Did what I say? Yeah. Actually, yeah. You said Bucks, but actually the Heat just won. So Okay, cool. There you go. So it'd be Lakers Heat. Jared, you got any thoughts? Because I do. I don't, man. I hadn't been watching. I've been watching football, and that's about it. I got to write a paper for ETS, so I'm not really paying attention. Nerd alert. Um. So, Mike, I, I don't think we have talked about this on air, you and I, but I have always been a pretty big fan of LeBron. I'm a full-blown Jordan cultist. I mean, right. it, it, it's a settled question in my mind who the greatest player ever is. But it it seems like you have to either be a Jordan or LeBron guy, and I'm not. I'm, I'm, I feel really privileged to have watched both of them. Now, that being said, the thing that has happened this year that Jared and, I, Jared and I have talked about in a previous podcast is that the social justice messaging has kind of ground me down, and LeBron is very much a part of that. Yeah, for real. So I'm a little bit exhausted with him, but on the court, I think he's incredible. And the idea that that we've got to find flaws in this 35-year-old dude's game who's playing basketball at a level maybe no 35-year-old has ever played before. It's kind of crazy to me. I'm I'm a huge Luca fan. I love Luca. I love Kawhi. Uh, I really enjoy watching those guys play basketball. But LeBron James is, in my mind, with Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the the most credible claimant to the second greatest player of all time. And I I would encourage people listening just just set aside uh, the the frustrations that you have if you if you are like me and can't handle the social justice stuff. Set aside comparing him to Michael Jordan and just look at the body of work, man. He's he's as impressive as they come. Uh, I I don't have anything but good things to say about LeBron when he's on the court. Now, when he gets off the court and starts talking, I have some real criticisms. But right. on the court, he's he's incredible. Well, yeah, and you know, the, the comparison's always made to Jordan, and I think it's more interesting. I heard somebody recently saying this. They're like, he's really more comparable to Magic Johnson. You know, I mean, as far as his 
you know, getting other people. He's already he's always averaged higher assist numbers, um, you know, than typical score first guys, you know. And then obviously he led the league this year. Whenever they basically said, you know, let's stop playing that he's the point guard. Let's just make him the point guard. And I think it's been really interesting. I do think I wonder how long his career because I think playing like power forward, he could play another five years because I think he's big enough and strong enough. And but his athletic ability is still off the charts. I mean, he still makes some insane dunks, and so I. I I don't think he's like on the edge of losing it, but I'm just saying, I don't know that he can play point guard for five more years. Maybe he can't, but, um, you know, in the right situation, but you know, Anthony Davis is unreal as far as his talent, talent level and all the different things he can do inside, outside post moves, you know, everything, but you know, Game in and game out, if you're going to win the game, you're expecting LeBron to win the game for you still, you know, even with those two guys on the team. And I think, you know, going back on his career is just he's made so many other people around him better and so many guys that, you know, I I don't know. I just think he's kind of a dominant force on the game because he's not. He's not a thing like Shaq was one of the most dominant players I ever saw, but he had to get the ball. You know, when LeBron's bringing the ball up and can direct the offense and can do, I mean, it's hard to, I never watched magic a lot, but for me, I've, I've not seen in the last 20 years, another player that's really like him. You know what I mean? Like, uh, that kind of, you know, dominates the game as far as not just scoring. I mean, obviously Jordan's a great defender. I'm not saying he's better than Jordan. I'm just saying he's a different player. I think than Jordan was. Yeah, years ago when he was in Cleveland, I went to watch him in the playoffs against the Hawks. I think the Hawks had Joe Johnson. Uh, And at the time, the second best player on the Cavs may have been Ben Wallace. Uh, So it was one of those lean years. And LeBron controlled the entire game without doing a whole lot of scoring. Every time Atlanta would make a run, he would get a stop, make a great assist. He might hit a shot or whatever, but just he kept his foot on them the whole game. And as soon as they showed any sign of life, he just put them down. And I was so impressed by that performance. And again, I don't have any I don't have any reason to back off of that. There are things about LeBron that I think have changed. You know, he plays a little bit more free safety on defense. Uh, you know, I'm like you. He probably has a long career ahead of him just playing down low if he wants to. There's a phase beyond that, though, where he, you know, there was a time in Rasheed Wallace's career where he just ran from three-point line to three-point line. LeBron could do that, no telling how long, because, like you said, his athleticism doesn't seem sust- substantially diminished yet. Uh, I think this guy could play as long as he wants to, and I assume he's going to try to play as long as it takes to to try to get on the court with his son. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that, too. And, um, you know, the other thing about LeBron is it's hard to, because he's played three different places, but you can't say he's chased championships. I know he did team up with Wade down there, but it's not like he stepped in. I don't compare it to like Durant going to the Warriors, for example, you know, that, and so, but he's been to the finals now, I think with five different or six different coaches. Um, you know, a lot of those greats, you know, the Celtics had Auerbach the whole time. The Lakers had Pat Riley, um, you know, for a lot of it. Then they had Phil Jackson. The Bulls had Phil Jackson. The Spurs have had Popovich. And like his wins, I mean, I'm Spolster's a good coach, some of these other guys. But some of these guys like were fired, don't even have head coaching jobs, don't it? You know, and he won finals with those guys um, or went to the finals with those guys. And so I think that's another claim that he has that like, look, anywhere I've gone, we've been great. And obviously the eight straight finals from Miami to Cleveland is a big you know, part of that, but he leaves Cleveland. They're the worst team in the league. A few years later, he comes back. They're like first or second that first year he comes back. You know, I mean, it's, 
anyway, it's just hard to say that a guy hasn't made a. I think he could honestly, he could have won the MVP any year. Like, and you know, and he's won several, but um, I feel like he probably could have won it almost any of those years. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I do think there's a case to be made that LeBron as GM has been a, a, a barrier to LeBron the player. Mm-hmm. But that's, I don't know. Those are as we may be seeing the end of his prime. Who knows? But as we may be approaching the end of his prime, those seem smaller criticisms than the the good things you just said. Yeah. Well, if we switch gears from the LeBron love, uh, I know it's been a difficult time for you, Jared, as you've mourned the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I just wanted to know how your heart was and if you've if you found a way out of the darkness. <laughs> um, I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> he puts you in a spot there, bud. Yeah. Um, Are you still wearing your doily in remembrance of her? Oh, my goodness, Jeff. Um, <laughs> all I remember is that you kept saying for years that she was a robot. <laughs> that but, uh, no, I, I actually have modified my theory. I think she was a Sith Dark Lord and she lived on the, the life energy of the innocent. Oh, my goodness. Wow. I do, uh, I do not approve this message. <laughs> Big facts. Big facts, y'all. Yeah, she, I mean, it's just, it's fascinating to see, you know, Christians praising her because she was, again, folk, I don't know why folks, I don't know why folks can't see that you can't just talk about someone's character if their policies are evil or if their judicial decisions are evil. Like you, you've got to include that in their character. Your, your beliefs are part of your character. And if you believe that um, a human being is, is not a human being until, uh, you know, based on the mother's arbitrary choice, um, that's an immoral belief. Like it's a wicked belief. The worst the worst thing that America has been involved in in her history is abortion. It's worse than slavery. It's worse than anything we've ever participated in as a nation. And she was a big part of the reason why it persisted. And so, look, I, I, I prayed for her family, but, you know, she was not a good person. At least not in her outward actions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I obviously don't have I don't have any reservations criticizing her. Uh, I, I mourn the loss of an image bearer. But I'm also very thankful that someone who has been a radical proponent, who's had a direct hand in our nation's scandalous sin of murdering the unborn, that, that she's not in a position to do that anymore. I'm I'm not upset about that. I'm thankful for that part. So I'm probably the radical here, but uh, on the point you're making that I'm not going to be able to define her by how much people who knew her well liked her. That That should be part of our picture of her as a public figure, I suppose. But her choices vocationally and their consequences and her explicit reasons that she went on the record about for why she made them is part of that record as well. And as a Christian, I can look at that and say, that's morally evil. Well, you know, we just talked about uh, honoring life in our Sunday school literature today. Uh, and I was teaching uh, and I kind of not tricked him, but kind of said, you know, so, I mean, tell me these situations. I said, you have a child and the child, um, you know, nothing wrong, nothing. And you just decide, um, I just, I just want to get rid of this child. And I was like, you just kill the child. I was like, who's okay with this? You know, of course, everybody's like, oh, no, 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 nobody. You know, and I'm teaching high school, junior high and high school kids. And, uh, you know, and then I was like, okay, let's say the child is uh, six months old. And they're like, oh, no, no. And I was like, what about a newborn? No. I'm like, okay, what if the child is a six-month-old baby in its mother's womb? 
And of course, I'm in church. I'm in teaching these kids. And like, I said, I think it's an interesting exercise with people because when you say one, it's like, oh my goodness, how can you suggest, right? How could you ever suggest that? And then you're like, well, what if the baby's still in the mother's womb? And they're like, well, and you can see their face change. You know, you can see like, well, uh, I didn't realize you were going to paint me into that corner, you know. Um, and, and I think you can similarly do it with other things. You can say, you know, a woman ha- has two small children and she can't eat and can't feed her kids. Like literally, let's not say like, you know, she just bought a new iPhone. She can't. But I'm saying like she has nothing. She's living in the street. You know, would you try to help her? Yes. OK. She's an illegal immigrant. Would you try to help her? And people are like, uh, you know, and I think it just speaks to us honoring life and image bearers, like you said, Jeff, first and foremost. And we can disagree with him and we can say, I I don't like this policy or we can say, but in the end, we have to be people that honor life. And every uh, human is a special creation of God. And um, we are not equal with uh, animals. We were made of a higher order. We were put over those, you know, animals. We're not just another, you know, clump of cells, whatever it is. Um, and so anyway, we had a good discussion about that uh, in in our Sunday school class today and just talking about honoring life, you know, from the beginning. And I think the only way you can get away with it is to say that that's not a person or it's not a human being yet, which obviously I completely disagree with. But I don't think there's any other pathway unless you'd say, I no, I believe they're a person, but I believe you should be able, because they're your child, you should be able to get rid of them whenever you want. I mean, it's like the only two ways that I can see it uh, playing out. So I completely agree. I think that she, I mean, bad people do some good things sometimes. So that's not to say everything she ever did. Um, I'm sure she championed some other women's rights that were worthwhile or maybe you know, did some things that were worthwhile, but it's just really hard to praise somebody that, I mean, <laughs> there's some people that have, um, you know, murdered 10 people that did some good things in their life. That doesn't mean that we praise them. So I, I completely agree with you guys. I mean, scripture has records of the people of God rejoicing when evil kings are removed. Mm. And I'm not saying it's time to throw a party, but again, I'm just, I'm unembarrassed to say I'm glad she's not serving on the Supreme Court. I, I do mourn. The loss of an image bearer, particularly one that I suspect did not enter eternity, uh, rightly reconciled to her creator through the blood of Jesus Christ. So those things are really tragic. And I mean that. But from a civic sense, I'm glad she's I'm glad she's out of office. Uh, Jared, what are you going to do about getting this uh, next Supreme Court nominee confirmed? Have you been talking to to Mitch? No, I can't stand Mitch. (laughs) Just honestly, I tried to vote him out when I was in Kentucky. Um, I tried to vote uh, for is it Bevin? Uh, oh, yeah. He he ran against Matt Bevins. Yeah, he ran against Mitch before he ran for Kentucky governor. And I voted for him and I wanted Mitch out of there. He was a rhino. And uh, but uh, but he's actually done some good. I don't I don't know. He's he's done some good here lately ever since Trump's been in there. Um, but before that, man, he just kind of I don't know. I didn't think he had a backbone. There was a, I'm just not a fan at all of Mitch McConnell. And, um, you know, but I I, I hope that you know, those surrounding Trump have encouraged him to, you know, to be more Republican beyond uh, name only. But uh, but anyways, I, I'm uh, from what I hear this, uh, the one that um, President Trump has uh, appointed um, or nominated. I don't know what the right term is, um, but I hope that she gets approved. Uh, I hope that she get go, they go ahead and do it uh, from what I from what I understand. The precedent is if uh, a contrary, you know, if the Senate is the majority is Republican, 
and the president is Democrat, then they don't confirm in an election year. But or vice versa, if whoever, if the opposite party is in the is president and the majority is opposite of what the president is, they don't confirm. But if they're the same, they do confirm. Um, but it's been it's been decades since that's been done. But still, there is, there is precedent. Um, and so I hope they I hope they run it through. But can you all imagine if Hillary Clinton had been had chosen these, um, you know, the two j- justices already and now three? Can you imagine if she got to choose three? No, no, I, I, I don't like to, to go to that place. Yeah, I like to sleep sure. at night. Um, yeah, I, you know, Jared, it's funny because I think me and you had a little discussion previous to this about the whole confirmation thing. You know, I, it's funny. I hate having to say this, but, you know, I'm a conservative uh, 100%. Um, you know, I'm not a Trump fan. Um, you know, I, you know, I don't really want to get into that, but I'm just, I'm just not a big Trump fan. So I've, you know, I've gotten some vitriol for that. Cause it's like, how can you, you're a Christian, you're conservative, you must be a Trump fan. But anyway, we don't have to get into that. But, um, but anyway, so ha- however, I clearly prefer him over, uh, Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden. Um, and, uh, anyway, so, um, but we had this discussion about, you know, about it and nominating and he, what I think is funny because, because I'm not really a Trump fan, maybe I'm more open about this or something, but, um, what I think is funny about the whole thing is, um, I hope she gets confirmed for sure. You know, I want him to nominate somebody before he gets out of office hundred percent. I realize there's a precedent. Maybe I think it's a, a very rare occurrence. So it's, it's hard to even say, I think that it's a precedent because it just is so rare that these things happen. But just going strictly off what each side has said, I think is hilarious because four years ago, I mean, you can find quote after quote after quote of Democrats saying you should he should be able to bring up, you know, was it Garland, Merrick Garland? He should be able to bring him up. We should, the Senate should vote. He should get a vote. This doesn't matter. He should be able to put in, you know, his person. And it was it wasn't. I mean, this is 11th hour. You know, what I'm so, talking about I mean, we got like 40 days to the election or something like that. So it's a little closer. But that was the Democratic side. Republican side. No, you got to wait for the new president. Let the new president pick it. We're not going to do this. Then you go four years later, they're literally saying the exact opposite. You know, the Democrats are saying you got to let the new president pick. The Republicans are saying, no, 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 we're going to put it through. I almost wish one of them would just be like, yeah, we realize this isn't fair, but we don't care. We're in charge. We're in power and we're going to we can do it. So we're going to do it because we think it's best. I would almost just have more respect if they would do that. Having said all that, I want it to happen. But I just think it's funny because I've seen on both sides on my Facebook feed and things like that, people posting videos like, look what the Democrats said four years ago. And then somebody else says, look what the Republicans said four years ago. I'm like, yep, they're both saying the exact opposite what they said four years ago. You know, and I'm not talking about the precedent. I'm just saying what they're actually saying. And so anyway, I've had a good little chuckle at that because I do think it's it's funny that they're both basically in complete denial of what they said, you know, the last time this happened similarly. So. Mike, are you here making the allegation that politicians would be hypocritical? I might be. I mean, I don't want to go on a, on a limb here, but I might be saying that. I mean, you're kind of putting words in my mouth, Jeff, but I might be saying that. So, Jared, would you say that that I mean, it, what he's pointing out there in their public statements anyway, would you say that's covered by your point that the, the president really is only for uh, a situation where the legislature is controlled by one party and the new president or the existing president is in a different party? Or do you think that's separate to the Mike's point? 
I think that's what they were saying when McConnell and all those guys, the Republicans, saying that they wouldn't because it was a lame duck presidency. They're referring to that the opposite party is over the Senate compared to the president. And um, and so now you have Republican majority in the Senate and the presidency as well. So, I mean, if it was flip flopped and the Democrats were in control, of course, they would, you know, nominate and approve. I mean. You know, there's no way around it. Like you, the only reason you do the lame duck argument thing uh, is if you're, you know, if it may switch, you know, if you may get your uh, your party's president in there, um, you know, that that's the only reason you wait, because otherwise, um, if you've got control, that's the reason why people put you in office like that, like Biden may win. Like if the Republicans don't don't affirm um, someone now. They may not get a chance to. And pre- President Trump is in there until um, July 20th. And so, I mean, July, July. Jan- January 20th. You'll probably try. If you- <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I'm a prophet. Um, oh, and for, for the record, for the record, I, I think Jeff and I both would say that we're not fans of Trump either. Um, you know, it's just he's been surprisingly, I'll just say it, he's been the most pro-life president in my lifetime. It's actually yeah, I, doing stuff. I agree with that, except for the 10 minutes I was alive during Reagan's presidency. I'd still I'd give the tip of the cap to Reagan. But that's the thing with Trump, man. I was a never Trumper in 2016. I didn't believe he'd govern well. Yeah. And uh, there's a whole lot I would change about President Trump's tenure so far. But he has governed much better than I ever expected. So I have come I've come much farther toward Trump than I ever expected possible. He, he's put more conservative folks around him like he didn't put rhinos around him. And um, and so you actually had a Republican Party um, or at least a, a Republican administration um, that was actually Republican. Like it wasn't moderates. It was people who are more conservative than Trump. Whoever's writing his speeches. Yeah, that's great. I mean, my goodness, man, at the Republican National Convention, he roasted. <laughs> I mean, him speaking at the March for Life is insane. It is insane that Donald Trump is the first president to actually speak at that thing. I just, <laughs> I just he, I've been pleasantly surprised. But if the Demo- the thing is, if the Democrats had run, um, I mean, if the Democrats would run someone pro life, you know, we would actually have a debate. But they keep they're getting more and more. They're they're arguing for infanticide now. Like I just they're getting more and more radical anti life. And I, I just uh, and Trump standing up and saying that every uh, you know every baby from the womb you know, to the tomb, um, has a God-given right to life. It wasn't, that wasn't a direct quote, but he, he essentially said that while, I mean, in his speech at the Republican National Convention. And so, I mean, I that is staunchly pro-life, man. And it's funny, though, like during the, right after the primaries in 2016, it wasn't it wasn't long until he's on the you know, I watched a speech with him and he says, I have become pro-life. And I'm like, dude. You won the primary, now you become pro-life, and you expect people to vote for you? If Hillary wasn't such an awful candidate, he would have lost. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Well, you know what? Three three really quick things. One, I I agree that he, is, he has proven more than what we knew in 2016, which was he might just say he's pro-life, and then we see nothing from it. He has proven to, whether he believes it or not, to at least support it, right, with his decisions and things. Second of all, I do have to say, you know, one caveat to what I said earlier is definitely that last time you 
had a lame duck. You were going to have a new president no matter what. In this case, Trump might win. Yeah. You know, so if he wins, then, you know, I mean, you got to there's a 50 50 shot, obviously. But last time, I think it's like, hey, we're going to have a new president. There's no guarantee we'll have a new president. But then I also think um, that for the Republicans, they have to do this. I mean, if they said, well, no, we're trying to be fair, trying to be super fair. So we're not going to nominate anybody. I mean, that would kill them. That would absolutely people would revolt to their base, would revolt. So I don't think whether they're hypocritical or not, I don't think they have a choice. I just, you know, it would be refreshing for somebody to be like, yeah, we said that last time. But now that we're in the situation, we realize we're going to do it anyway or whatever. But it's never going to happen. But I'm just saying I don't fault them for doing I mean, there's no way they can be like, because we don't know what's going to happen with the election, but there's a, you know, it's close. I mean, there's a high probability they lose, you know, maybe the Senate, maybe the presidency altogether. So um, Mm -hmm. anyway, so I think they have to do it. I, I agree with you there. Look, I'm to nobody's surprise, the most radicalized guy in this conversation. I wish Mitch would get up Monday morning and say, we saw what you did with Kavanaugh. We're not doing that mess again. This woman doesn't deserve that. Let's have the vote in 30 minutes. I mean, I, I, I'm all about transparency and forthrightness. And so whatever, man, that these parties are irreconcilable at this point. The the decorum that was once maybe part of our government, it's just gone. Let's just own where we're at and act like it. So I'm all about the gloves coming off, guys. That's something else that with President Trump, the the, the Republicans have developed a spine and um, they're starting to. Just like you said, Jeff, I mean, they're they're starting to no, we're going to we're going to vote to confirm. Like, I I don't know that these guys would have done that in years past. It seems like they just kind of diddle daddled around with the the Democrats, not trying to actually push for Republican idols. Um, I don't I don't consider myself a Republican. I, I lean more independent. Um, you know, I've, I've voted Republican in every election. Uh, but but anyway. I just I don't know. I I hope that I I want to see Roe versus Wade overturned in in my lifetime. And um the Republicans, I hope they win the house. I hope they keep the Senate. I hope they get in full power. But I'll tell you this, if they don't, if they get the power to cut planned parenthood totally off and they don't do it, I'm done. Well, we've been there before, buddy. I mean, that's why you talk about voting for Republican. I haven't for quite some time. I voted third party because I got tired of their lies. But Donald Trump has put some action behind it. And it could be that the left has moved so far left and so radically that, like you said, following President Trump's example and just in in desire to see Western civilization preserved a bit longer, they'd be willing to do so. The the thing I'm going to say is that Barrett is an incredible candidate. We should be thankful. In fact, she probably should have been nominated before uh, Kavanaugh was. Gorsuch, too. And so I'm looking at the, the list that Donald Trump has presented, and I think this is the best nominee he's presented so far. The only reason I would think you would let her go through any kind of confirmation hearing, and I'm just thinking about this strategically, I may set a 48-hour window to have a hearing and just let all the Democrats get on the record how much they hate white mothers and just say, yeah, okay, guys, you're. we appreciate the sound bites, and now we're going to have the vote. That's the only reason I can see letting there be any sort of extended confirmation hearing. I, I definitely wouldn't let it last more than a day or two. Just enough to give them uh, plenty of time to say all the venomous things they want to say about a woman who's just a normal human being. And then let's have the vote. 
Jeff, you got it sounds Lynn. like you've looked into it a little bit as far as her history. What do you say about the criticism I've heard, other than that she's you know pro-life and stuff, is she's inexperienced. She was only a lawyer, I think, for three years, and then she was a professor for a while, and then she's only been a federal judge for three years. What do you think about that? Because I've heard that as like, a, and I think that's a legit thing to consider, right? I mean, that's not like, I don't like her stance. Um, it's saying, does she have the experience to serve on the Supreme Court? I don't know if you'd read much about that, but. Yeah, I'll be honest. Anybody who's in the uh, Scalia tree, I'm a fan of, and she very much is. Yeah, she clerked, right? Did she clerk for him on the Supreme Court? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And I think her her CV is bulletproof. And so I, I look at her and I say, I, I don't necessarily need someone who has practiced. I need someone who has a strict constructionist view of the of the Constitution. And that's what I think she is. I think she has theory locked in and is evidence that in her education or her work or writing. The other thing I'll just say back to this is we live in a day when Barack Obama was elected president after basically holding a junior senator position for a couple of years. Yeah. Trump had no experience. The idea that someone's lack of experience should disqualify them from high office, I think maybe in a good way, Barack Obama shattered. And so I, I just... I want to see more about what her conclusions are, what her convictions are, what she's done to demonstrate those in the work we have access to. And you can keep the inexperienced argument. I think it it lost a lot of weight with Barack Obama's election. It's a good point. All right. We got anything else we want to advise the Republicans on? And hey, I want to say a special word to uh, Mitch McConnell. We know you're a regular listener, Mitch, and Jared had some hard things to say. I know that probably <laughs> came as a shock. This is a hard way to find out. <laughs> if you need to give us a call, man, just reach out. We'll uh, we'll sit down and, and figure this out. <laughs> uh, just added one more person to the list of people that hate Jared. <laughs> JaredMorrisCanceled.com. Dot <laughs> net. <laughs> All right, guys, let's put a bow on this and get into what brought us together. Are y'all ready to pull the curtain on 2020's Tenant? Let's do it. Yeah, I'm ready. All right, man. Appreciate the enthusiasm. Hey, listener, I'm going to give the IMDb summary of this movie. And when I'm done doing that, we are in full-blown spoiler territory. So if you keep listening and you hadn't seen the movie, be prepared to have the plot ruined. Uh, If you plan to see the movie first, hit pause here. Come back and listen to us when you've got the movie under your belt. So here it is, guys. IMDb says, armed with only one word, Tenant. And fighting the for <laughs> easy for me to say, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, a protagonist journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. Uh, this is a Christopher Nolan project, and when I say that, it's like a decades-long Christopher Nolan project, maybe his most ambitious. And I've got thoughts, but I want to hear from you guys first. Let's start off with conscience warning. Jared, is there anything in this movie you think a thoughtful Christian is going to want to know about in advance? Um, there's language and violence. I don't think there was any sexuality. Maybe some scantily clad people. And there's a woman in a bikini for a while, but it's all kind of family vacation style. I don't think there's anything. Yeah, I don't think there's any nudity. I don't remember any of it, but this movie like rocked my brain. <laughs> so I think that's all, man. Mike, anything Anything we're not thinking about? Uh, no, not that I can remember other than what you said. It's a PG-13 movie, and the uh, the rating was given for, quote, intense sequences of violence and action, some subject, subject <laughs> man, I'm tongue-tied, suggestive references, and brief, strong language. So it sounds like, on the nudity and sexuality front anyway, it's uh, it's clean. Let me ask you this, Mike D. When somebody comes up to you and says, tell me about that movie Tenet in 10 years, 
What are you going to lead with? What stands out most about this movie? Man, that's that's a tough one. Um, yeah, it's funny because you said well, I'm going to read this, and if you plan on watching it, you know we're going to ruin it. I don't know that we could tell you enough that would still not make you when you watch it go like what and still be. I mean, you could read everything about it, and I think you would still enjoy it. I mean, it would ruin. Obviously, we're going to ruin some of the kind of cool twists of it, but I'm just saying the movie is so. Uh, complex, I guess I should say. Um, so I would say, you know, I think it's enjoyable. I mean, I'm a huge uh, Christopher Nolan fan. I mean, I just, I think he's so, I think he's criminally underrated. The fact that I don't think he's ever won an Oscar. He's barely been nominated. I mean, some of the, I just think his movies are quality every single time. Um, so, I mean, obviously I would tell somebody it's sort of a time travel movie, um, you know, uh, so it's uh, very interesting. It's not one you can just halfway, you know, sometimes you just sit down and you just kind of watch a movie. I have some family members that are this way. It's like they'll sit down, they'll kind of watch it. And I'm like, I won't even recommend stuff like Inception to them because um, I'm like, if you will not key in and really pay attention, you're just going to be so lost. I mean, I tried as hard as I could to pay attention. I was still sort of lost. Um, and so I definitely don't think it's a super accessible movie. Um, we're just, Hey, let's just throw this on and see what happens. I mean, you might enjoy it a little bit, but you will have no idea what's happening or why it's <laughs> happening. Um, so, I mean, you'd be like, Oh, that's a cool action scene. Um, you know, I, I, I think obviously it, it is an action film. Um, there's a lot of, man, there's some really cool action type stuff, um, in it, um, that honestly I hadn't seen before. Just some like, you know, it's hard to have a movie and have like, oh, I've never seen that. I mean, I've seen them crack a safe. I've seen them, you know, do all kinds of stuff. But some of the stuff like the reverse bungee jump they did, <laughs> you know, just some stuff like that that was really interesting. So I think it's a it's fun movie. It's action, but it's also very, very cerebral. And so you have to be willing to to pay attention and uh, really try to watch it. Um, but I thought it was enjoyable. I just wish I understood it a little bit more on the first viewing. I felt like it was almost a little too vague. And that's for somebody that's a big fan of Inception and some of his other Interstellar and those movies. Um, I felt like this was maybe his most difficult one to understand. Um, that's kind of where I came out on it. And Jared, how did it rock your brain, buddy? Could you elaborate on that? Um, yeah, it's hard to hear the dialogue for one thing. Like subtitles would have helped. And, um, you know, he wants you to have this movie experience, like you're immersed in this world or whatever. And um, so it was just it was just hard to follow the way the scenes were cut. It's almost like there were no segues <laughs> like, oh, we jumped to this scene and like you're supposed to your brain's supposed to fill in the gaps. Yeah. And I think with his movies, you kind of you expect that a little bit, right? Like you expect, hey, I'm not going to worry too much. I think maybe I'll understand that later. You know, I mean, you think that in, in movies in general, but like in his movies, like I'm not going to understand everything right off. It'll come later. But I, f I did feel a little disappointed because a lot of it did come later. But some of it I'm like, I'd have to I think I'd have to go back and watch it again to really see how that fit in or to understand that. And I agree with you on the dialogue thing. I think that's actually like a technical thing. And I read an article that said that Nolan appears to have kind of an issue with his movies being too loud and all the action scenes and all those special effects being so loud. I felt like there were certain times in the movie, no matter how hard I tried, I literally just could not hear the dialogue. I couldn't mm -hmm. hear what they were saying. And so I, I agree with you there for sure. I read one critic who said that he has now watched the movie in 35 millimeter, which is Nolan's preferred format, um, but also watched it in uh, digital. And I don't know how he did that. It's special movie critic magic, but 
he said that it's easier to understand in the digital version rather than 35 millimeter. And he attributed it to Nolan's mixing. Uh, I, I was deeply frustrated about the lines of dialogue. I'm not sure if they had been speaking into my earpiece, if I would have understood the movie better, but I would have at least liked to have the chance. Mm. And I'm super looking forward to watching this at home with a closed caption on. Yeah, mm. I completely agree. I, I do think that's a worthwhile criticism because I, I just, you know, I mean, we got to a point I was there with three other people and we all looked at each other like near the climax of the movie. And I'm like, can you hear what they're saying? And they're like, no, like none of us could understand what they were saying. Um, and I think the sound mixing is probably right on. Yeah, there's a scene towards the end of the movie. Uh, well, you know, depending on what your theory of time is at that point. But it's towards the end of the linear experience of watching this movie forward uh, in forward entropy. And the the gentleman who is playing the um, the the military officer who ends up one of the, the last men standing one of the three last men standing can't remember his name. It's not Neil. It's not protagonist, but he's the he's the military guy. He has his oxygen mask on and it was straight up Charlie Brown's teacher. It's this super important interaction like right before they have the briefing about the blue team and the red team and it was womp 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 and I thought what in the world are you doing? Why even have the scene? <laughs> Nolan should come out like so many directors and producers do now when they end their movies terribly and they're like well we really wanted the audience to play it out in their own minds the way they, I'm like I don't go to a movie to play out the ending of my own mind. <laughs> I go to watch the ending that you wrote like that drives me. Now I mean where does the character go from here? I get all that but like you don't have any. He should have said, well, I purposely you know, made that vague so the character could say what you wanted him to say. That's the way no one should yeah. play it. But postmodern movie making. Absolutely. <laughs> um, my thoughts on this film in general are that this is the most Nolan movie ever. And he apparently he worked on this for like 20 years. And so I feel like we have got the full Nolan experience here. I'll tell you that I almost I'm like you, Mike, I'm a huge Nolan fan and I I try to watch everything he does opening day. But I realized coming into this that there is a Nolan look to a movie. There's a Nolan sense to a movie. Like when we were coming into the opera house, I was like, oh, yeah, I remember this. This is when Bane takes over Gotham and all the architecture is brutalist. There's a there's a strict color palette that every one of his movies conforms to. And in some ways, that experience kind of took me out of the movie because I, I it was like somebody held up a big sign and said, you are watching a Christopher Nolan movie, which is something I'm in for. But it still seemed very on the nose in that opera house scene. Uh, and then when the dialogue stuff is so muddied and the plot is super complex, I feel like I could recount to you everything the Wikipedia summary says about the plot. But I can't actually explain to you what happened in the movie. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. And that's why I think when you ask how I would explain it to somebody 10 years from now, I was like all over. I'm like, uh, 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 <laughs> because, you know, speaking just comparatively, I agree. It's like this is the most Nolan movie he's ever done. I mean, Inception, there, that movie blew my mind when I went to the theater. I mean, it just it was so and that's the thing. Nobody's making the Marvel movies are great. All A lot of these movies are great. I'm not saying I'm not one of these people. It's like they're not making any good movies anymore. But at the same time, a lot of people are not making original movies and he's making original movies. None of his movies are anything but his. And Inception blew my mind from the beginning. I was confused. And at the end, I realized it's a little bit open ended. Right. I mean, there, that one is probably his worst as far as interpret your own where it goes from here. But I felt like 
by the end, I understood the story. I understood, okay, here's the main, I understood not only the story, but the mechanism of the story. You know, they're dropping deeper in dreams. I get it. Dream upon a dream. They're confused. His wife's confused about which level dream she's in. She thinks she's still got a drop in you. Like, especially on a second watch, right? This one, I felt like I was very still fuzzy on the mechanism. Um, Like, I understand, and we'll probably get into this, but, you know, like... I understand what they're saying is happening, but I don't really, not really grabbing. And I, and I get it as a quote unquote time travel movie. No time travel movie makes perfect sense. They all have holes. You know, I think back to like the Avengers, um, Avengers Endgame, um, uh, spoiler alert, but Avengers Endgame. And I think Hulk maybe or uh, it, Mark Ruffalo, whatever, is ask a question. And they're like, but how does time travel? And they're like saying, how does this match up? And he says like, well, if you travel back into your own past, then that becomes your future. And the present becomes the past, which can't be changed by the future. And everybody's like, oh, okay. And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> like, I get what you're saying, but it still doesn't make sense. So to watch a movie with this, you have to understand it's not going to make perfect sense. But at least often you can understand the mechanism. You can understand in Back to the Future, they're going back and every action is changing the future. Got it, right? In this one, I felt like... Okay, I know what they're saying and they're explaining, but I don't get how it works. And I felt very frustrated by that, that it was cool, but maybe on a rewatch, it'll be different. But I felt leaving it that I was a little uncertain on the plot, couldn't hear all the dialogue, and I also didn't fully understand the mechanism of how things worked. Any any follow up on that, Jared? I, d- I don't understand how the protagonist um, ended up being the one who's in control of Tenet. Like, how is he sending... Um, Pattison back, you know, how's he sending him back in time? Uh, that's what I didn't understand. Yeah, I get what they're saying, but I think that's one on a rewatch. Understanding that fact might change what you see throughout the movie. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I think it would help on it, but I, I agree with you there. It's like it's the whole movie, and I know we haven't really talked about this yet, but it's whole moving forward and backward at the same time. So, um, and that's the part, again, that I'm like a little fuzzy on. I know what they're saying, um, but I just I don't necessarily follow it or can't can't remember enough to play it out and see how it fits everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the aggravation of it. If, it, if you're going to go super high concept, I usually like a movie that assumes I'm smart enough to follow the plot. But if you're going to go this high concept, you're going to have to spend some time kind of catching us up on what the mechanism is. My wife likened it to the Matrix, but I thought the the Matrix had a pretty well-defined world. I, I, I had to suspend my disbelief to watch the movie, but I could understand what the rules were, and it was internally consistent. With Tenet, they literally don't even take the time to let the people talking be understandable. And it left me really frustrated. I'm... I'm I know and I've read what you said earlier about Nolan wanting a cinematic experience, Jared. But when I know I can't understand the dialogue, it takes me out of the cinematic experience. Mm -hmm. And honest to goodness, I really enjoyed this movie in the theater. Like, I thought it was a great popcorn movie. I was glad to watch it. But I don't know in terms of what I came away from walking out of the theater 
that this was substantially different from a Michael Bay movie, where there's just these incredible set pieces, and I just kind of take it on faith they hang together in some plot. <laughs> that is quite the insult, sir. But um, but no, I you know I, it's funny because that's what I was trying to say. Like if you're not really prepared to pay attention and willing to watch it maybe a couple of times, then you will just get hey, this was like a high action, you know, like a lot of fun type of movie because there was a lot going on. Even though there were some pretty long periods of dialogue as well, almost, and that was another small complaint. Almost like you know sometimes when they write a movie and the characters are explaining the movie because they need to explain it because they know that you're not getting it from everything else. So they're like talking to each other, but it's almost like we put this in here to tell the audience what's happening because I'm sure they're lost at this point. Um, So my main complaint, I don't mind that he makes a movie that you may need to watch a couple of times. I mean, with everything being so straightforward and simple and sequels and all this stuff, it's kind of refreshing to be like, you know, I don't understand every bit the first time. But whenever you literally cannot hear the dialogue, I think that is a like, that's what annoyed me. Like anything else I'm okay with. Um, as long as if I go, but now if I watch it three times, and I still don't get it. You know, I'm not that stupid. Um, and so, uh, that's frustrating, but my biggest complaint now is that I couldn't hear it, but you know, it's funny cause the whole time thing we're talking about in general, you know, he has a thing with time, you know, obviously inception, the depths, you know, going different dreams, interstellar. You remember when the main things is, okay, you're landing on this planet and it's been, two hours for you, but it's been 20 years for the guy back on the, and trying to understand like, how does that time difference work? Um, you know, Dunkirk, the way he filmed it, that they're happening, like each thing is happening at the same time. Um, and there's like a time element there, obviously memento, even like the prestige that he did, which is an amazing movie, you know, deals with the duality of like different character, you know, characters at the same time and, you know, fooling you into thinking you're watching watching something when you're it's actually you're watching something else. And so, you know, it's kind of like his thing, you know, um, I guess outside of the the Dark Knight movies. But no, I I think you're right. And I think that's really important to the final analysis on this movie, uh, at least what I'm going to suggest as a Christian. But before we get there, let's kind of go through our normal questions here and try to chop the movie up. So, uh, guys, when you're looking at this, this movie as a whole, what what would you say is good, true, and beautiful here? So I think what we've been doing here is kind of going through the story a little bit, talking about our reaction. Let's get down to brass tacks and say, where do you see the creative beauty of the Lord in in the world of Tenet? I think there's a clear good and a clear evil. Um, I can't remember the fella's name, um, the lady's husband. Is it Ives? You talking about Sator? Is his name Sator? Kenneth Branagh's character. The main the main bad guy, basically. Yeah, the main bad guy. He's Sator is his name? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What a horrible name. Um, And then the protagonist is obviously the good guy, and he's trying to save the world. I mean, I thought all that was pretty clear, was good. And um, I don't know, willing to give his life to save the world is good. So Sorry to say that one more time. Willing to give his life uh, to save the world is good. Mm. Yeah, I mean, clearly the mother loves her child and is willing to to go to great lengths to protect her child, uh, to even stay with her child, to throw back to, uh, to our conversation earlier about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. This is a woman who sees her child as valuable, desirable, uh, something to be sacrificed on, uh, on behalf of, not a burden or a parasite to be you know removed. Uh, I thought that was not just good, but it sort of reflected the world as it is. 
uh, it's a good thing to see motherly love played out. Mike, what else do you think here is really good? Uh, you know, it kind of goes along with what you all said, but I think, you know, even like the evil side of the movie, the Sator side, they're trying, you know, of course he um, wants to just die because he knows he's going to die. I think he's got cancer or something, right? Is what it says. But um, so, but part of it is, and I can't remember if this was straight out, because I've read a couple articles on it. I can't remember if this was straight out said or it's something that the articles just said were insinuated. Maybe it's just become like it's all in my brain now, so I can't remember. But it's like they thought man was destroying the earth with global warming and such. And so they were going to go back and try to. So what I think is interesting is, they're trying to um, to go back and like almost destroy man because they're destroying the earth, which is wrong. But it is a like they're trying to do a good thing. Right. And then you got the good guys that are saying, hey, we're going to go back and try to thwart these guys and we're trying to do a good thing. And so I feel like a lot of people in the, the movie are trying to do something that is worthwhile but along the way, they're damaging so many other things. People are dying, loss of life, destruction, all this stuff. And so I thought like the desire was good, but it also reminds us that when we try to go back and fix our mistakes, ultimately man can't fix themselves. Uh, either side, you know, can't fix themselves, can't uh, even with the best of intentions, even if they had the most true intentions, that's a good thing. Um, but they very rarely succeed. And ultimately we don't succeed and can't succeed. But even if you temporarily succeed, there's always going to be other effects. And it's just part of like living in a fallen world, you know. Um, but anyway, I thought the motivation was good, but it just, again, it reminds you that they can't do it perfectly. There was still, in the end, everybody wasn't happy, right? There was still loss of life. There were still main characters that didn't live through it um, and things like that. So anyway, no happy endings, I guess. Yeah, we can't be we can't be our own saviors. Um, I think it is explicitly said at one point in the in the movie that the people living in the future don't have lakes now. They don't have natural resources because we use them all up. And so they're trying to wipe us out so we don't use up all the stuff they need in their day. Pretty sure that's an explicit line of dialogue. Gotcha. Uh, I don't want to spend too much more time here. I just think some of the stuff that Mike brought up already should kind of go under this. What's good about this movie? This movie evidences a high, high degree of craftsmanship. Visually, Nolan is a master of bringing you into the scene as an audience member. I felt like I was there for the raid on the Opera House. Clearly, um, this is a labor of love as well. Like Mike said already that he poured into this everything he had trying to tell an original story. He worked on it for years. And so I want, you know, I'm frustrated with some of the product that came out of these labors, but this is an original story crafted uh, exquisitely and was a, a, an effort to tell a, a good story that, that made people think and uh, evaluate themselves in some ways. And for that, I think Nolan deserves credit. And that kind of falls under the, the heading of creational goodness. Yeah. And just did you see um, along with that, you know, he has this love of doing like real action and real sequences and all that. And like that plane, there's a huge plane crash, like literally like a 747. And they were like, how can we do this? And I, I actually saw this behind the scenes thing on it. Uh, it was like a 20 minute deal. And they said, well, we just said, well, we can get a 747. We'd crash it. And so it was like an <laughs> active airport that they crashed the 747 into like a hangar. And then there's this huge scene on the interstate and they like rented or shut down basically this interstate for like two weeks 
to film all these scenes, whereas everybody else just does it on a green screen and forgets it. But I think you can see that in the, his craftsmanship that he, you know, says, no, I'm going to make it harder on me, but better for the audience. And I think you can tell the difference. Oh, for sure. Practical effects are the best. And he's so good at his craft that him doing practical effects, it's like a force multiplier. You know, it just it's even better when that when that plane is walking toward the hangar it's going to crash into. And I say that because it feels like a monster approaching a city, mm-hmm. like telephone poles are snapping and these cars are getting moved out of the way. I was just blown away by something I've known forever. These planes I've flown on are huge, giant monsters. Mm-hmm. And Nolan snapped me into a new view of it that made it feel fresh again. He's he's an incredible, incredible movie maker. I know that's not breaking news, but there are a few working that are comparable. Mm-hmm. Well, what's the other side of the coin then? What's distorted, evil, and false? How do we subvert idolatry? Um, I think the desire to, I think there's something sinister about desire to manipulate time. Uh, it's to be godlike. Uh, we assume that the problem is something that has happened in history ultimately. And I mean, yes, there are problems in history, um, but, you know, us being able to go back and change things, we assume that mankind will do something better. And, um, you know, that hope that's in mankind, um, I I don't think it's warranted uh, biblically. I mean, we 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 talk about image bearing and um, I I spoke tonight about conscience. So and and, um, you know, mankind still has conscience, uh, the immaterial reality that God has given us, the law written on our hearts. um, But it it condemns us. We're we're totally depraved and um, being able to manipulate time doesn't change that depravity um only christ can so so i'm leaning towards that the basically the the idol in this movie is if we could just if we just had the power to do this you know we could we could fix our future and um it, it, that's a myth that's a that's children's stories uh, fairy tales that don't exist because of the wickedness that's in our hearts only we need a new heart the bible gets it right I mean, in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we need a new covenant. We need uh, to be transformed by the divine. And, um, you know, I, I think that's what the major evil is in this movie and the false gospel. Good. Mike D., what do you yeah, got, man? Good. I think those are good points. That kind of leans into, you know, what I was saying about them, you know, kind of trying to save themselves and say, like you said, I thought that was if we only had the power, we could do it. Um, and, you know, we could save ourselves. But I also think there's a lot of inherent selfishness, you know, especially the future generation saying, well, the previous generation ruined this for us. So if we could get rid of them and change, you know, then that might help us now. Uh, I know we were just talking about it earlier, but it kind of helps me or helps me. It kind of makes me think of the abortion argument, you know, and just this is not convenient. Like what's most important is the survival of like the adults that are living now. And if that means that something's going to come into my world that is going to disrupt that or it's going to take resources from me or it's going to then I'll just eliminate it, you know. Um, And I think that's a viewpoint that a lot of people have, uh, population control, things like that. Um, And I'm not saying you can't look and say there's finite resources and we need to be smart with those. And, you know, I I try to think about those things and not be wasteful and be good curators of the the earth that God has given us, uh, you know, kind of dominion over 
over as, as far as temporarily. Um, so I, I get all that, but I also think, you know, um, the viewpoint that sacrifice basically everybody else, but the current people that are in power, um, for the good of the current people in power, um, is definitely an evil thing. Yeah, I appreciate that it's presented as something evil here. You know, we, it kind of bumps us back into what's good. It's one of the things that I believe is that a good story has to have a truly evil character. And we've got kind of two here. We've got the group of unknown people in the future who are willing to wipe out their forebears because they took stuff they wanted to have access to in their own day. But then Sator is completely self-centered. He's a supernova of selfishness, and he wants to become a black hole of selfishness and suck everyone into his death. And so I appreciate that Nolan has a moral compass and in a way that maybe a morally ambiguous, morally compromised day we're not used to seeing on screen. He'll still come in and say, hey, that's a bad guy over there, and this is the good guy. And he gets it pretty much right in their roles. So I appreciate that about the movie. Uh, before we move into how does the gospel apply, there's a couple just details that we didn't get to earlier. I'd like to toss out there. Um, I've got a I've got a theory I wanted to run by y'all. But before we do that, Mike, you had talked uh, off air about some of the naming that Nolan had picked. Would you care to kind of bring our listeners into that? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, so part of it is interesting because like the main protagonist is just called protagonist. He like doesn't have a name and several characters in the movie don't have names. So it's kind of funny when Jared was trying to think of the, you know, the Sator, he's one of the ones that does have a name and Kat, uh, the main girl, she, I think she's named as Kat in the movie. There, there's some people that have names, no doubt. Um, but the protagonist is one. And I think that's no, you know, just Nolan being Nolan trying to make it interesting that he never actually has a name. Uh, but, you know, we mentioned the Sator thing and, uh, you know, I, I kind of got into the weeds on some of this uh, looking into the history. And I read an article on, um, on I think it was on Vox um, website, VOX. And uh, they basically got into this movie review and then they bumped, jumped over into this uh, thing about this ancient, what's called the Sator Square. Um, and it's basically this palindrome that has five words listed in the palindrome. And the words are Sator, Arepo, Tenet, Opera, and Rhodus. And if you flip it any which way, it still spells Sator, Repo, Tenet, Opera, and Rhodus. And so it's this like real world, real life thing that has been found um, in a lot of different locations. And of course, those are five Latin words, um, but it's been found in Italy, England, Syria, uh, I think they said Sweden, uh, Portugal, I mean, kind of all over Europe. They think that, um, man, I think they said one were found when they were excavating Pompeii that was, mm. you know, covered in um, the uh, volcano. And they believe they go back to like the time of Christ. Um, some of these now, again, you know, we know how that can be, but, um, but anyway, you can read about it and you can, if you go out there and Google it and stuff, you can read all about it. But it's really interesting because when you take those five words, Sator is the evil character, uh, in this movie, he's the main, you know, bad guy, uh, in the movie. And then of course, tenant is the middle word. And of course that's the main, uh, thing. Arepo is also a character in the movie opera. As Jeff said, the movie starts out just right in this scene in a huge opera house. And then in one of the scenes at the airport, you can see the security guards work for Rotus Security. So he put all five of those words 
you know, clearly in the movie. So this definitely influenced him, um, which I, I think is cool. I love stuff like that. Um, and, you know, this square, no, nobody really knows what it is. There's all kinds of thoughts. Some people think it's Christian in nature. Um, and the reason they get that, and again, you can Google all this, but is that if you take the word, the letters and you arrange them, then it spells out paternoster in two ways, which is our father. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they, some people believe that it was like a secret Christian symbol for people to communicate that they were Christian um, when they were in times when they were being you know, persecuted or things like that, uh, kind of like the Christian fish type deal. Uh, and then the four letters that are left are A-O-O-A, Alpha, Omega, Omega, Alpha. So anyway, that that's interesting. I don't know if that's, you know, there's no way for me to know that's real. I don't, you know, I, I can't know that. But again, you can read all about this. Some other people think it, you know, refers to other things and that that you can look up that article on Vox. It's it's really interesting. Um, even if I don't know if it's true, it's very interesting. But it just kind of I thought it was a cool thing to bring into, you know, I can go watch a movie and then I can go read a Wikipedia article on a real live thing that I never knew existed. That's super interesting. You know, and I again, getting back to his storytelling and him finding a way uh, to do this. Um, and if you even look at the words, the translation, Sator is translated as like sower or planter or cedar. Um, and, you know, this guy is like the one that's making all this stuff happen, um, all the different time travel-y things that are happening. happening. Um, and then Arepo is like a proper name. And in the movie, it is a proper name. Uh, tenet means like comprehend, possess, you know, sustain, uh, which also kind of makes sense in the movie. Um, and then uh, I think Rotus, uh, it means just like literally to rotate or something. But anyway, it, it's not perfect, but he used several of those in a cool way. And I, I found it super interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. That Good on Nolan, man. Layers, right? Maybe here we go, guys. Put your tinfoil hats on. Maybe this is how Nolan is signaling to us that he's a Christian, but he can't be outright about it in uh, in modern Hollywood. Oh, man, you have nailed it, Jeff. You have absolutely nailed it. Um, the, the theory I want to run by y'all, have y'all read that Neil uh, Robert Pattinson's character is Max, the, the cat's son with Sator, uh, deployed by the protagonist from the future to be kind of the agent uh, that activates him? Have you ever read that theory? Oh no, I haven't. But that—that's certainly possible. That's that sounds great. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So the theory goes that the protagonist basically steps in to be a father-like figure to Cat, uh, Cat's son, as as they grow up. We see at the end of the movie that he protects them from being killed. And so, you know, this theory would say the protagonist stayed involved. Um, Max grew up to be. Uh, you know, someone he cared about, but he also understood the significance of the need. And he was one of the guys the protagonist would trust to send back in time. And I'm not going to go into all this because it, it is a Google deep dive, but there's even some there's some naming stuff with Neil and uh, reversing a name that's associated with the family. So there's a lot of intratextual detail you can kind of dig up on this. Uh, but the the thing that's wild to me is if that's the case, then Max has been living backward for decades and decades. And so he has he's figured out some way to, you know, to breathe as he needs to. But he's also had to deal with all the weirdness of the dynamics of living backward, right, where heat makes you cold. And when you run, you feel the wind at your back and all this stuff. And I read online that that uh, Pattinson had based his character 
on Christopher Hitchens, the uh, the new atheist writer who died a few years back. And one of the things that's going on there is that that's a that's a quirky dude. It's kind of like Jack Sparrow in The Black Pearl. Uh, being based on Keith Richards from the Rolling Stones, there's something a little off about that dude. And Pattinson does seem like a man out of time. Uh, there's also this point where, you know, a cat's been shot and they're in the shipping container. They've brought her into the backward time to try to heal her or whatever. And they're kind of laying out Sator's plot. And I'd seen it identified as one of the worst lines of dialogue in the movie. And it, I don't believe that Nolan has worked on this movie this long and left something clunky in there. So they basically go through Sator's plot and say he wants to destroy all of reality when he dies. And Kat kind of chimes in and says, and also my son. And so the the people who hold to this theory think that that's a way that Nolan is signaling that that the son is the mechanism that, that triggers all the, the important work the protagonist does through Tenet. So anyway, dig into that, listener. Dig into that. Well, I just have to say co-host. here that as we're talking about all this and you're like, when they're in the ship and he feels the wind in his back and he's learned to breathe, people that haven't seen it are like, what? What are you talking about? But, you know, we can't possibly cover all those things. But just suffice to say, when they're moving backwards and and that's happening, everything is like reversed and they need special mechanisms to breathe and everything feels different. And, you know, so anyway, that's I think those are some of the cool mechanics of the movie that are really interesting. Um you know, and and play into a lot of what I liked about it, even though I didn't fully understand it. But yeah, when you said people who haven't seen the movie, I'm thinking people who have seen the movie. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, well, you know, one other thing, and maybe I should have said this under things that are good, but it made me think about it when you were talking about her saying, and my son. You know, Nolan is like the king of foreshadowing. I mean, his movies, every time, you know, if you remember Inception, when it started out, it starts out in this scene, it ends up being one of the last scenes of the movie. But he starts it out, and I don't even know if it's, I mean, I guess it's more time jumping. But anyway, he gives this thing, and you're like, what is it? What is happening? And then you don't understand it, like the whole movie until the end. You're like, oh, okay, I get it. And he loves to have that, right? He loves to have the aha, the twist, all that stuff. I think that's one of the things he's really good at. But, you know, I think it's interesting because he always uses this in all of his movies. Um, you remember uh, in The Dark Knight, he did it when he uh, it's it's always these small little things. And Alfred is like talking to Christian Bale and he's like, you know, when you left, I imagine, you know, I go to Florence every year and I used to like to sit in the cafe and just imagine I'd look over and I'd see you there happy and living your life and whatever. Well, then when the movie ends, that's the last scene in the next movie. It's like one movie removed. Even he references it in the second movie and then it happens in the third movie. So he does this type of stuff all the time. Um, and I thought there were some super cool examples. The one you just mentioned, I hadn't even noticed about my son, but then there was one <clears throat> where she references the the wife references being with her husband, who's terrible and controlling and won't let her leave and is holding her son hostage, basically, and all this stuff. And she says, I was out with him one time and I saw this woman jumping off the boat and then she just disappeared. And she's like, and how I you guys dreamed of being that woman, you know, um, and how I just, you know, would love to be her and just escape. Well, 
long story short, you watch the movie, she is that woman, you know, and it's like, she's that woman in two different time frames, you know, one time frame, um, she's there and the other time frame is like her moving backwards or whatever. Um, but anyway, again, just great foreshadowing. It does speak to a good thing. Really. God is the King foreshadower, right? Um, the old Testament, the sacrificial system, the Passover, Jonah, three days, uh, stuff in Psalms, Isaiah, God is constantly speaking about things. And later on saying, remember, this is what I told you would happen. Um, and so anyway, I thought that was cool and something he's really good at as well. Yeah, Jared, I'm not sure if you want to jump on that, but that was that, that exact scene in your that you're describing her saying I hated her for her freedom. Turns out later she is that woman and, and now has that freedom. You know, the 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 concept in the story is that the events we're watching are kind of the the point in a time pincer movement that people have been moving from. Uh, you know, the people have been moving forward in the entropy of time and people have been moving backward in the entropy of time to culminate in this precise moment where Sator has to be killed without destroying all of reality. And I'm willing to bet on rewatching this movie or watching the director's cut or if we could break into Nolan's office and look at his outline. I, I think probably this movie is structured as that kind of pincer movement where uh, the story we enter into at the beginning moves towards in reverse the story we meet at the end, like when, you know, it opens with basically the big first action piece is uh, the the masked guy jumps out of the teleportation device and there's a big fight and he's acting crazy because he's moving backwards in time in the fight, like the way he moves through the hallway and stuff. Well, then, you know, about that much time from the end of the movie, we realize, oh, that's the protagonist moving backward through time, right? Yeah. And so I'm betting the structure of this movie is ultimately going to prove to be a pincer-shaped narrative as well. Yeah, that's, well, that's really interesting, uh, for sure. We'll see, but I'm willing to bet. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's. I think this is where we keep talking about a rewatch. Now that you know the story, I think so many things will make more sense. And, and in that way, I appreciate him because it's almost like a lot of movies I watch them, like I enjoy, I'd like to watch it again. But this, I think I feel like I'll be maybe even watching almost a different movie the second time because with that understanding, I'll hopefully pick up on so many other little things, you know, some of the ones we mentioned, maybe even some others. So in that way, it makes it interesting because I can go back and, you know, uh, get almost like a new watch out of it as well. So, yeah, I think this movie is going to reward rewatching and then also going to reward uh, digging into the, to the layers. So I think at the time we've come to here, we need to talk about how the gospel applies. And I've kind of got a zany thought here, guys. So I'm going to let y'all go first and then I'll lay mine out. You can tell me what I got wrong. So Jared, let's start with you. How does the gospel apply when you're thinking about tenant? Um, I think, uh, I think it's obsession with time and being able to ma- manipulate it. You know, we human beings don't need to manipulate time. I mean, I, there's a lot of movies that that make this argument, right? That you know, if we could just correct the past, then our futures would be taken care of. And I mean, you know, I would love to be able to go back in time and you know try to manipulate things, but um, you know, really, Christians have something better than that. We have instead of trusting humans to manip- manipulate time, we know the God, uh, you know, he is our father who is over all time, outside of time and controls it. He's the creator of time. And um, if he is in control of all things, then it really is freeing to just submit to him and enjoy him and to trust his sovereignty and cling to him in the midst of difficult providence. I I think that's what Christ did. And, 
you know, uh, I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for, you know, it's one of these things where we, we do the same thing with knowledge. If, if we only knew, you know, if I only knew why certain things happen, that's, that's kind of the argument Then I would, I would be okay, but it needs to be enough that God knows. And, um, that, that's literally the secret to perseverance in the Christian life is, um, clinging to the one who knows all things. Uh, and, you know, these doctrines often aren't taught in church anymore, an emphasis on God being all powerful, all knowing, all loving, all good, um, all present. And um, and so you end up with folks who kind of have a have a familial view or a friendly view of God, and they don't really have this transcendent view of him. But, you know, that that's what this movie misses is we need that transcendence of God. We need God to be God, right? Um, you know, he is God with us, but as he is God prior to creation. And and so um, it's very freeing to trust him because of who he is and to enjoy who he is in the midst of difficulty. And I, I think this movie misses that. Um, you know, everything's up to the characters and uh, their ability to manipulate time. And, um, you know, we, we trust God continually in it. I find it very freeing. And I mean, there's still difficulty, but but at the end of the day, when I pray, man, it's um, there's great comfort. Amen. Mike D, what about you, man? Yeah, you know, I, I can't add a lot to it other than that. I think it just it shows, you know, Jared's kind of making this point for, you know, same thing I would say as well. But I think um, I think that it's, you know, just reminding us that we cannot uh, save ourselves. We can't fix it no matter what we try to do. And obviously we know this, but we know man is always on the, the road to fixing it him, themselves. Um, and, you know, I, I have this thought a lot and in discussions sometimes with people, especially people that are not believers and, and things like that, you, you know, some of them will completely ignore everything, deny everything. There is no God, there is no heaven, there is no hell. But I think a large majority of them would say they believe there is some sort of good place and there is some sort of bad place. But when you get down to saying, well, how do you end up in that place? We say this all the time as pastors, we're like, people think they can be good enough. And then people are like, no, they don't. People don't think that. But they don't say it straight out, but they do believe that they can be good enough that they can sit because they believe there's a good place and a bad place. And they think they'll end up in the good place. You know, I've rarely met anybody, maybe less than a handful of people that ever said, no, no, I'm, I'm not a good person. I'll probably go to hell. I mean, you know, I just, they don't want to think that. And so they have a gospel, you know, and I know you guys talked about this before. Their gospel is just a gospel of, of works or of like, you know, grace based on nothing. Um, definitely not the blood of Jesus. Um, but you know, I think it just, we can be reminded that we can, we just cannot fix our world. Um, we can't fix it no matter what we do. Um, even when we do make some positive change and we're like, we kind of, you know, I broke off a chunk there and we were able to make a, a difference in this area. But while we had, we're turning facing this area, the area behind us is falling apart, you know, and I think it just reminds us of our, of our need for God to fix us and to fix our world, which is also fallen, uh, right. And decaying over time. So anyway. Yeah, those things are certainly true. Um, I'm going to go maybe a little too fine point on this, but there's a few things I want to throw out there before I think the ultimate motif of the movie uh, or, or what I would say is the ultimate motif of the movie. But if the theory of Neil as the active agent who brings the protagonist into tenant, you know, deployed by the protagonist from the future is true, 
it makes for an interesting narrative move because, you know, there's a time when Sator is talking to the protagonist and he tells him that, uh, you know, the greatest sin I ever committed was bringing a child into a world that I knew was ending. And I hope that God will forgive me. If Neil is his son moving back through time to uh, to activate the protagonist and carry out the principles of Tenet, it actually wasn't his greatest sin. It was his greatest contribution to the world. And so we think about the overarching narrative of this movie that the future thinks we have used up all our precious resources. Well, that almost always dovetails with the idea that there's overpopulation and that we should stop having children. And I, I just really appreciate it. I don't even know if Nolan intended this, but if the theory is true, I love the theory that it was actually the birth of a child that made sure the world didn't get destroyed. It, it wasn't the problem. It was the solution. And that's kind of to the side. But largely, it sets up uh, the theory I want to roll out there. And it's I guess the way I would start talking about it is I would like to inject Christopher Nolan with truth serum and talk to him about his religious understanding and his politics. Um, if you remember, I think it was The Dark Knight. It came out around the time that the Occupy Wall Street movement was super prominent. And there's a scene where these, you know, Occupy Gotham people take over a wealthy person's mansion. And they're kind of saying, hey, we're going to live here now. You you wealthy people have trampled on the poor too long. We're going to live in your luxurious place. And then later, Catwoman's character comes back and everything is destroyed and trashed. And she's like, well, this is awful. This isn't serving anybody. And so the point that he made there, I don't know if he meant to or not, was that, you know, when it belongs to someone, it can be lovely and support life. If it belongs to everyone, nobody cares about it and they just destroy it. And I remember thinking, like, are you sure you want to say that, Nolan? Then you got into Interstellar. And at the heart of Interstellar was this idea that, like, we're so scientifically advanced. We no longer need the concept of God. But by the time Matthew McConaughey is playing the like cosmic keys, you come back around to saying, wait a minute, did God foreordain this? And I was like, you know what? Nolan is playing with some theological ideas here. And then in this one, it's interesting to me. Now, now check me on this, guys. One bad guy, the most central bad guy, is the guy who is so self-centered that he wants all of reality to conform to his experience of death. If he's going to die, everybody's going to die. If he can't have the world, nobody's going to have the world. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And then the other bad guy here is a group of people living in the future who have come to hate the people who lived in the past and want to destroy them and remove them from the record so their world can be better. Is that accurate? Mm -hmm. Mike, what do you think? Is that, am I missing something? No, no, I, I, I'm with you. Okay, well, so I don't think Nolan meant to do this because he made the movie for too long to be on this nose about it. But that is the very social re-engineering moment that we're living through as a society. We are living among people who think that they have reached a, a point of moral enlightenment, that they can look back on the greatest minds in human history and say, you didn't measure up. You're not going to be defined by your greatest discovery, your greatest insight. If you don't live up to our standards right now, we want you removed from the record. We we want you destroyed. So your statues have to come down. We're going to stop reading your books. We're not going to say good things about you, whether you're Thomas Jefferson or Martin Luther King Jr. Because you don't measure up, we're going to take you out. And who are the people who want that project to be carried out? 
Well, it, it's the people who think all of reality could, should conform to their experience of reality. So if I have experienced uh, racism or microaggressions or some kind of abuse, well, all of life should be interpreted through my experience. And if you're not going to go along with me on that, well, you're a bad guy. And so I look at the two villains in this movie, the people who want to destroy a history that they have judged and found wanting. And the bad guy who says, my personal hurts are the interpretive grid that I want everyone to live out reality through. And I look at this and I'm like, this is the most 2020 movie that could have possibly been made. You know, it's funny. I wouldn't have made those connections. I don't think you're wrong. Um, You know, I'd have to think about it a little bit more, but I wouldn't have made those connections myself. But um, but I can definitely see where you're going with that. And it is it is interesting because because Kenneth Branagh's character, Sator or whatever, you know, he's doing all this, but he's also it's revealed he's about to die. And so, like, it's easy to be like, well, I'm going to do this because like it won't even affect me. Like I'm going to be gone anyway. You know, it's like a very, very selfish viewpoint. But I think the point that you bring it up, I'm trying not to say too much because I know I don't want to trigger you here. Um, but um, but I think it's very interesting because the time in which we live, things that people didn't even think five years ago. And I, I'm not talking about like the collective conscious. I'm saying an individual person like John Smith did not believe this five years ago. And he suddenly come to this light. And let's just say it's the it's the way to be. It's the absolute truth. And, you know, the way he thinks about, you know, race or religion or races or, you know, whatever is is right. He's 100 percent right. And he just came to this conclusion in the last two years. How in the world does he expect somebody that lived 200 years ago to come to that conclusion? Oh, absolutely. Um, and, and I'm not saying that they're they're that it's okay or they're right. Um, you know, like I'm not saying you say everything that they did was right, but I feel like we have a very like selfish and snobbish. Like, you know, I I may have just started believing this a year ago, or two years, or five, or ten years ago. But this person that lived 150 years ago with no technology and no ability to even gain. I mean, you think about it, some people lived in parts of the world where they never even saw a per- person of a, a different an- ethnicity their entire life. Like sure. they never, you know, or something like. How could they possibly understand other cultures? Like they, they, it wasn't even possible. And yet, and I'm not saying, you know, that about Thomas Jefferson or something, but I'm saying you got the, and yet I want to hold them to my standard that I just developed like in the last 18 months. Um, and so, and and sometimes Mike, you develop that standard from insights they gave you partial insights, yeah, but insights nonetheless. Right. So Thomas Jefferson writes, although he did not practice all men are created equal. Right. Um, and, and part of the thing that has fed our common understanding now, thankfully, that all men are created equal is that he wrote a document that virtually everyone in the West is familiar with. But now he's got to be evaluated according only to his faults and failures in, in a way that doesn't even acknowledge the debt we owe to him for the good things we've come to. And you know what's crazy is Sator in this movie, again, this gets into more of the mechanics that I don't fully understand. But those people, base, like the future people, basically gifted him this technology and this yeah. ability, right? Like they placed it for him and led him to it. And so he was a, a he was not a self-made man. You know, those other people completely made him. Mm-hmm. And so he was speaking of, you know, living off what people have revealed or done in the past. He 
was a 100% a product of other people's great, like basically gifting him this or their graciousness toward him or choosing him for one reason or another. Um, and then, you know, he promptly decides to take that and think that he's God of all time uh, and can and can change the way history and the future are play out. So, Jared, you've been quiet. What do you think, man? What's, what does my theory have any legs? Um, I think so. I don't know if it's intentional, um, but it might it makes sense uh, judging history based on you know your arbitrary standards now. I mean, some of it needs to be judged, but um, it's funny that we think we're morally superior when we've murdered sixty plus million babies um, in America. And uh, anyway, yeah, I just I'm with you. I don't know that Nolan meant to do this, but I think in God's providence. Literally, God may have meant for this movie to come out now. It's it's one of those indictment texts, I think. And to talk about, and I'll wrap up here because I know we're into extra innings, but to, to talk about sort of a positive theme to pull out of the movie that reminds us of the gospel is what is going to save the world. What's going to save the world is someone from our time now who knew us and realized we weren't monsters lives into that future where everything's in chaos and people decide the best thing we can do is destroy the past. But he knew people who lived there and he loved people who lived there. And so he decides, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to create a conspiracy to stop them from destroying the past. And so it's someone who knows us, someone who loves us, who at the time of crisis chooses not to participate in that harsh judgment and that destructive impulse, but to rather work to save those people who'd come behind him, or excuse me, who had been behind him in terms of the, the chronology of his life, his lifespan. And so it's not a perfect parallel, but I do think there are incarnational elements to that story that we should pick up on as Christians. Now, the, the truth of the matter is the protagonist is a fallen person. And whatever sympathies he has, he has them as a fallen person for other fallen people. That that clearly isn't true of Christ. But Christ is the one who uh, is the mechanism by which the Father stops his own wrath against his church. And he is of the people uh, that he is saving by his own choice to take up flesh and dwell among them and move toward them. And so, again, it's not a perfect one-to-one comparison. But there are themes there that I think a Christian should go, oh, wait a minute, I know actually why... I'm excited to see a protagonist who uh, moves to save people from the wrath to come. Uh, And he does so because he loves the people who are subject to that wrath. Uh, I think that speaks to the actual protagonist of all of cosmic history. Yeah, good points. Well, that's all I got, fellas. Jared, do you want to critique that? No, good, man. Okay. Well, this has been a long one. It was almost as long as the movie. Here's the thing, guys. I understand you better. I could understand the words you were saying, so I've understood you better than this movie we watched. Except that one time that Jared didn't say real words. <laughs> that, was, that was similar. He was trying to teach I, us something about the movie. If you play it backwards, it's real. You go in reverse. It says Paul is dead. You understand. Backwards. <laughs> my, my final take on this movie is it's no Stargate. I'll tell you that right now. And I need to revisit Stargate. I'm just kidding. But no, it is funny. Stargate's one of those time, you know, we're talking about time travel movies and stuff like that. And 
And uh, it's one of those that I realize it's not a good movie, but for some reason it just stuck in my mind, you know, watching it. And I think the early to mid nineties. And it's one of those ones like every couple of years, I'm like, let's go back and watch Stargate. And my wife, she kind of rolls her eyes, you know, but uh, for some reason I like it, but no, I'm, I'm with you guys. I'm really excited to, to get to watch this movie when it's available at home and turn on the captions and, you know, read about. It. I, I genuinely think it's a movie you could watch, read about for hours, and watch again, and then still be like, I'm not really sure how that works. Um, and hopefully, it's not in a frustrating way on a rewatch. You know, I, I have to admit, I really liked it. I enjoyed it. I would recommend it. But um, until I can watch it again, I'm a bit frustrated with it for sure. I'm with you. That that's taken right out of my own my own mind. I'm looking forward to seeing it again. I enjoyed the spectacle. I was pretty frustrated about this film. All right, Jared Moore, where can our listeners find you if they don't know? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jared H. Moore. Uh, go and get my book. I've got a book, uh, The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And I want to encourage you to check it out and encourage families and parents and Christian leaders to engage pop culture with their children and to train other Christians to do the same. Here, here. Mike D., what about you? Where can, where can listeners find you? I'm mostly just at the house, so I'll be here <laughs> if you want to. Um, no, I, I don't, I'm not too big in social media, but I do have a Twitter, Who's Your Mike, um, that I'm on Twitter. And uh, I recently just uh, did some ghostwriting for uh, a book, The Pop Culture Parent. Um, so. <laughs> uh, Got that Excellent. going. Um, just published it under a pseudonym. So, um, no, I'm actually reading the pop culture parent right now, uh, along with uh, the recommended book by Mr. Jeffrey Wright, The Madness of Crowds. I'm deep in both of those right now. So, enjoying them. Um, but, yep. All right. Yeah. I think both of those are must reads. One of them is much grosser, but I think it's it's an important book to read as well. I'm at Right Jeff, and Friends of the Podcast is on almost every social media platform at PCCD Pod. And we are thankful that you chose to take a moment to tune in to this episode. We hope if you enjoy the podcast, you'll take a moment, leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Maybe take a moment, too, to tell a friend and say, hey, you might check out this podcast if you think they would like it. For Michael Dickerson and Jared Moore, this is Jeff Wright signing off on this episode, reminding you to live every moment as if you are before the face of God. Because you are. Talk to y'all next time. 